It was about 6.30 in the morning, sometime in August of 2013, when our group, I think there were about six of us, we get out of the car into an almost empty parking lot at Logan Pass in Glacier National Park. An older man in socks and slippers gets out of the only other van in the lot and walks over to us. And of course we know him, because Montana is a surprisingly small place, even in Glacier. And it's Pat, and he's already ridden his bike to the top of the pass in the middle of the night, and he's now making coffee. We tell him how we're about to run from the pass into Waterton, the Canadian side of the park. It's a 30-mile jaunt through some of the wildest and most scenic terrain the United States has to offer, excluding Alaska, of course. And I am nervous. But Pat, he gets all excited and he's like, damn, that sounds like fun. I wish I could come. But at that particular moment, I wasn't so sure that we would survive our fun adventure. I'd never run 30 miles in my whole life, and I especially hadn't done it through the remote backcountry that's known for its grizzly bears. And I'd always been more of a roadrunner. But here I was with my bear spray and my passport on a gloriously sunny morning heading off into who knows what. Luckily, my companions were more experienced. We had maps, we had our water filters, food, and an extra layer just in case. And we had eight hours to do the 30 miles and make it into Goat Haunt in time to catch the ferry across Waterton Lake. The route started high and ended low, so the elevation gain wasn't going to be a major issue. Although, to be honest, at that time, I really didn't have any idea what that meant. And I really didn't know if I could trust my legs or my stomach, really, to carry me through. Welcome to Dynamo Jenny. I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs with Adventure Cycling Association. Doing something for the first time, especially when it's in a place with known dangers, often requires a leap of faith in yourself and sometimes in others. But what comes out the other side can be really magical and worth it. And while the story we're starting off with today isn't about a bike adventure, it is about that leap of faith. I started off a runner, I know, I'm sorry, but My feet eventually led me to some really spectacular places on some really life-giving adventures. And those adventures led me to bikes, which led me to more adventures, which led me to skis, which led me to more adventure. You get the idea. But we've all got to start somewhere. And mine started with one run across Glacier National Park. So I remember we began at a slow jog along the garden wall, and everyone was letting out these incredible yips of joy to tell all the very unimpressed mountain goats that we were coming through. And in the first seven miles, everything felt really good, like really good. The air smelled good, like dirt and water and plant life. The sky was totally cloudless. It was warming up a little bit. And there were wildflowers everywhere throughout this incredibly steep terrain we were running through. The trail was great, though, and made for really easy going. I was near the end of the group, kind of basking in the sun and watching my feet, make sure I didn't trip. And at about seven miles in, I just suddenly hear this screaming, this guttural yell up ahead of me. And so when I catch up, I find out that Jamie had just seen a bear across the slope on the trail, directly in our path, but it had just wandered into some trees out of view. It was most likely a grizz considering how high we were, so we stuck together and carefully moved ahead for about another half mile, continuing to yell the whole time and announce ourselves to the bear, wherever it might be, so that we didn't surprise it. I knew in theory that this is what we were supposed to do, but I had no idea if it would work in practice. I'd never seen a grizz. So we made it through the patch of trees and popped out onto this small meadow that was surrounded on either side by cliffs or peaks. And that's where it was, hanging out, not 50 feet upslope, digging into the ground for like grubs or glacier lilies and not paying us any attention at all. And here we are screaming our heads off. It hurt us. So for some reason, maybe because it didn't care that we were there, we all stopped on the trail and just stared at it. It was enormous and beautiful. It had this huge dish-shaped face and you could see its big hump on its back. When Jesse, who was bringing up the rear, caught up with us, he kind of laughed nervously and said, 
pretty sure this isn't the best place to be stopping, guys. And then when we didn't move, he was like, come on, let's go. And so I snapped back to reality and I remember this fear of wild animals just welling up inside of me. And we made a quick exit after that. In another half mile, we found ourselves at Granite Park Chalet, which is where you can hike into and sleep if you can pay for it. There were a few bleary-eyed guests of the chalet were wandering out onto the trail in their jackets and their slippers. They had heard us yelling a half mile away for this bear, and they wanted to know where it was so they could take photos of it with their fancy telephoto lenses. A park ranger found us and checked in with us about the bear. He called into some sort of headquarters. So I guess we weren't really in the backcountry yet and we'd already seen a grizz. It was sort of terrifying to think about that and to think what the rest of the day might hold. But I'd also seen something few people would ever see. A grizz just hanging out, doing its thing, eating grubs, nosing the ground. And to witness it was really powerful. But at that point, we had a lot of miles to go. So on we went. I never got tired of it, and I also really never got used to it. Every flower was this mystery, and every landscape was a thing shaped by glacial forces that I could barely comprehend. At one point, Ross pointed down to a rock as we were hiking a long climb. It had these depressions in its flat surface that formed a wavy pattern. He said that an ancient lake called Glacial Lake Missoula stretched all the way from Missoula Valley to Glacier National Park during the Ice Age, which, by the way, is a huge expanse. And this rock, the depressions were made by the waves lapping up and back across it for who knows how long. I mean, I was completely mind-boggled. How could this rock still be here, just sitting in this place in the Alpine? At some point, we reached a high Alpine meadow called 50 Mountain Meadow, and we sat down for lunch. I remember sitting on this rock, just feeling completely overwhelmed. It was perhaps the most beautiful place I'd ever been in in my whole life. And I sat on this rock and tried not to cry into my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It was such a moving experience. But it's also like I I wasn't comfortable there. Every rock looked like a bear. The wind was chilly. My knee was starting to hurt. And parts of the trail were overgrown and cut at my legs. But those are the things I barely noticed. I didn't think about the miles and the hours. Those just drifted by. But it was every single sight and smell that were the most fascinating thing in the world and occupied me fully. I've never felt this way, really. And I knew it was exactly where I wanted to be. Luckily, we saw no more large predators on that run and only a few backpackers. So really, it was just us making our way across this landscape. I got slower on the descents as my knee ached more, but we hit the lowlands heading into Goat Hond, and I just felt this spurt of energy and excitement. The thimbleberry bushes were thick and damp, and the trail was even and duffy. The group sped out over the last five miles. Some were feeling good, and some were not feeling so good. But I remember coming into Goat Hond, which was really just a backcountry ranger station and a dock for ferry passengers, from Canada who get off and walk around for about 30 minutes before heading back to their side of the border. And we had tickets for one of those ferries, but we'd gotten done two hours earlier than we thought we would, so we just had to kind of wait. So to pass the time, we walked out onto the dock and stripped down and jumped into the ridiculously cold water and immediately got back out again. We laid in the sun and Eventually, a park ranger came over and made us tell him the whole story. He said he'd heard through the radio that there was a group of runners coming his way, and that he'd been keeping an eye out for us. It's kind of funny when you think you're away from the human world, but it somehow keeps an eye on you anyway. So at this point, I'm lying on the dock, my body's starting to stiffen up, and the only thing in the world I want at that moment is a beer. So we start yelling to the few fishing boats that are floating our way, but either no one had beer or they really didn't want to share it with a bunch of smelly runners because they're all like, no, no, we don't have any beer. And I was like, who are you? You're a fishing boat. You must be Canadian because every single Montana boat would have beer in it. 
So finally, our ferry arrived, and all of the passengers trundled off, did their thing, and then 30 minutes later, we got back on and took off for the other side of the lake. Unfortunately, I was surprised to find out that the ferry was actually a tour and not just a straightforward ride across the lake. And this was a bummer because I get very motion sick on boats. So here I was, head between my legs, smelling my own stink, and listening to this man on the intercom describe how grizzly bears will do anything to protect a carcass. And every time he said the word carcass, which is a word he must have really liked because he said it a lot, he would draw out the last S so that it sounded like carcass, carcass. It was really, really weird. At last, we reached Waterton, where we had to phone in to a border patrol agent with some official at the town's dock before we were totally legal in the country. And we all admitted that we had brought a weapon into the country, bear spray, but the woman on the phone seemed completely unconcerned, and so we were legal. So we walked off the dock into Waterton, and there was our shuttle man, Ryan. He's a caterer by trade, and he had this full spread of hot burrito dinner and beer, complete with a tablecloth and napkins, awaiting us next to his truck. It was such a beautiful sight that Jesse, who has never met Ryan in his life, gave this cry of joy and lunged at him with a hug, like a full body, sweaty hug. Not one of those polite hugs, but like an I love you hug. So we ate, we reminisced, and I felt incredibly happy and at peace. And that's kind of the moment that my whole life changed. I'd been feeling really stuck, and that stuck feeling was beginning to eat away at me. But I didn't know how to get unstuck. I wasn't sure what it was that I needed. So there was something in that particular moment that made me acknowledge that this was exactly how I wanted to spend my life. I ended up ending a long-term relationship, I changed careers, and I started running in the mountains. I filled my life with people who wanted to run in the mountains with me and who could take me farther in these experiences. Since then, I've seen quite a few more grizzlies, and now I know the names of most of the wildflowers. Geology still baffles me, but I know that there will be so many more adventures to come. I think it was probably the first time writing, I think it was the first time writing with a woman and not, I don't think I had actually gone mountain biking with a woman before that. And now we meet Hillary Oliver, who knows just what it's like to find herself a little lost, to change course without really feeling ready, and to find joy on the other side. I met Geneva, the, my downstairs neighbor, who was who had a spare mountain bike and invited me to come along. And that was a, a moment of shift, that very first ride with her, where I was able to just connect with that childlike side of riding that I hadn't experienced in years, and maybe not ever, just because I had been mostly either riding by myself or riding with guys. and feeling like I had to measure up somehow, and it just felt so free. My name's Hilary Oliver. I am a writer and editor and content manager. I uh, am a freelance writer. I write for a number of kind of more outdoor publications in the outdoor and adventure world, but uh, my main bread and butter gig is managing the blog for the company Outdoor Research. And it had been a long time too. I, in college, had you know, dabbled in it a little bit. I lived in Fort Collins in Colorado and we had some trails, you know, right on the edge of town, which were great, but I didn't have any women who I rode with. And then throughout my 20s, kind of a number of life things happened that 
kind of took me away from the outdoors in general and biking in the mountains. And it was something that I would really wanted to get back into. And I just really wanted to dive into the outdoor life a little bit more. And when I was around 30, I, um, I met a new housemate who was total outdoors woman and invited me to go mountain biking with her and had a bike that I could borrow too. And I just remember such a feeling of freedom and just how child, like that kind of childlike feeling of woo, going down the hill and, you know, swooping up and over the hills. And it really was different than, you know, I'd only ridden with other people a little bit when I was younger, but it was usually guys. And as a straight cisgendered woman, I felt like sometimes that could be awkward. When you're with someone who you know they're just simply giving you the gift of biking with no strings attached, it is so sweet and it was so fun and <laughs> it really definitely was special. So I think I, I'm pretty sure I took a solid digger actually. I think that was that time. <laughs> I think I, I, I don't remember. I, I must have had some good raspberry because I remember hitting the ground, but it did not phase me because the overall experience was just so fun. Like I didn't mind having to get off my bike and push up a bunch of spots because those few moments of just sheer swoopy fun on the on the more flowy sections were just so much more fun than that. It, it totally overwhelmed any fear of falling at the time. At the same time, I also inherited a couple hundred dollars from uh, when my grandma passed away and decided that the best thing to do with that would be to build up a touring bike. And I had wanted to go do a bike tour or do kind of more adventure cycling for years and just never had a partner. My romantic partner at the time was not very outdoorsy and also had an alcohol problem that like compounded that situation. And finally being single and being excited to do these things that I had put off for so many years because maybe I didn't have the money or I didn't have the partner and just finally being like, well, I have a couple hundred dollars here. I'm going to put that toward a bike that could take me on adventures and I'm not gonna wait around for somebody else to go with me. I'm just gonna do it myself. And I don't know if I remember a moment, but it just, maybe it was the moment of receiving the money and making that decision that that was how I was going to use it. And that I was just not going to sit around and wait anymore. That, you know, at 30 years old, I was tired of waiting. And I was like, life is too short to sit around and not do these things that you want to do. The very first bike tour I ever went on was just a, a one night trip that I planned from my front door in Denver to a KOA camp in Fort Collins, which is about an hour drive north of Denver. And I think in my imagination, it was kind of a shakedown trial trip to see, oh, if I could maybe do a longer trip like this someday, and which I suppose actually it was. But I, of course, would have loved to have had a friend go with me, but my roommate at the time who also was potentially interested in bike touring couldn't get the same days off and finally I was like ah, I'm just gonna do it you know and the bike that I had was something that a friend had helped me build up it was the one that I, I used my inheritance money to buy the frame off Craigslist and it was an old 80s mountain bike frame with some front suspension and hand-me-down panniers from a friend who gave me a, a screaming deal on them because they were almost broken <laughs> And I set off and rode up to rode up to Fort Collins, and it was, gosh, it was so exciting to be moving someplace of such distance on my own power. I remember, you know, about two thirds of the way through the trip, kind of finally getting out of the Denver metro area and having some open views of the mountains. And uh, you know, I took just all these back roads uh, on the way up, and feeling like, oh. I'm really doing it. But at the same time, probably a good chunk of that trip, I felt really scared because I had never done something like that. I had never gone on a solo road trip before even. I mean, gosh, I, other than driving to my parents' house three hours away, I just had never done anything like that before. It felt really big.
riding along the road where there's not much shoulder. I remember, I remember a truck busting along up from behind me and the guys yelling out the truck window and I don't know what they said, but the energy of the truck going by and energy of the guys yells out the window and also my kind of awkwardness with the weight on my panniers with my camping equipment that I wasn't used to. I just like kind of slid off the shoulder a little bit and barely caught myself before I just rolled into the ditch and just it made me really scared not so much that I thought I was going to get hit which definitely was a possibility but it just was more a sense of vulnerability that made me really afraid and then I camped that night at the KOA by myself and didn't sleep very much but at the same time was like yes I'm doing it I'm doing this thing that I dreamed of doing and yeah, definitely there was a good amount of fear, but I was I made it back the next day so thrilled that I had done the thing that I set out to do and on under my own power. It felt really exciting. I remember really clearly that first night, every little tiny sound would just I, my body would just like shoot full of adrenaline like I was going to get attacked, you know. Maybe it was probably a breeze in the tree or a rabbit or something like that, but I felt like having my tent out there alone with my bike next to it just felt like it was like announcing, hey, I'm alone and defenseless over here. Come get me, you know? And that was the one I was thinking the whole night. And I think at, at that time, I felt kind of angry for myself for being afraid. And I think I was kind of hard on myself. And I felt like, oh, I shouldn't be afraid. I should be brave, you know? And I, gosh, that was, uh, it was like 10 years ago now. And I guess I would say, I've spent the night outside, either in tents or in a car um, or in a bivy sack, a number of nights alone since then, and I still feel afraid. And I think the difference maybe is that I've kind of started to be a little bit more compassionate to myself and realize that, you know, there's a reason why you're afraid and that's okay. And there's an unreasonable reaction, which is just to feel panicky all the time. And if you look at the actual things that you're afraid of and what are the odds those things are coming true or, or actual possibilities versus just your psychological response here? Feeling the fear and doing it anyway is important. I guess I'd say I'm, I'm just trying to be more compassionate with myself and also just realize sometimes I just don't sleep that well, but it's still worth it. I think there's a combination of factors that I felt, you know, one being the fear of being a woman out alone doing something where you are very vulnerable, you know, you're, if you're riding your bike in the public eye and there's nobody around, you know, anything can happen and, and out camping alone also, uh, that's one thing. But then there's also this other factor of, I think a lot of women will wait to feel like they are totally qualified for something or totally ready to do something before they try. There's this, maybe it's, a cultural pressure to perform a certain way like you know in the media we roast women for looking this way or looking that way while they do something and or doing something just not quite right you know and I think statistically as far as jobs women are much more likely to wait until they feel like they have all the qualifications before they apply for a job whereas men statistically will apply for a job when they have like 70% of the requirements and they're like, ah, I'll be fine. Might as well try, you know, I could do this. And however we've gotten to that point in society, I think that kind of attitude and maybe lack of confidence carries over into all these other things like cycling or whatever adventures or athletic things that we want to do. There's this feeling like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I can't do it, you know, or I don't really look the part. I don't fit what bike tours look like or climbers look like or whatever and it's really easy for us to shut down and use that as an excuse to not do something or feel like we're just not prepared to do something and I know that affected me like I didn't have a nice quote-unquote nice I didn't have a fancy road bike or anything and I kind of felt like for a long time I didn't didn't quote-unquote didn't know what I was doing and I think it took finally just getting old enough to where I didn't care so much what other people thought. I think that helped. And then also having just a little bit of encouragement from another woman too, to help me not care so much whether I did it 
quote unquote, the right way. And I, I think the thing is nobody is qualified or not qualified to do something like a bike tour. All you need is a bike that can get you from point A to point B and somehow to be able to carry your stuff to sleep with and to eat with, with you, you know, and it doesn't matter what that looks like. And it doesn't matter whether dude at the bike store thinks it's the right way to do it, you know, and it's easy to get caught up in being self-conscious. But I think when you can finally let that go and be okay with, ah, whatever works, you know, and you'll figure out your systems and, you know, but I think if you're okay with being a little bit imperfect, it'll get you going a lot more times instead of waiting for somebody to like grant you permission. Fear of others, fear of the dark, and fear of not being qualified. All of these are familiar to many of us. I mean, at least it's familiar to me. But for Hillary, it's taking the next step toward the thing you want that can prove how worthwhile the attempt really is. She's taken what she's learned from inhabiting space in the outdoors, this philosophy of life's just too short to wait, into her professional life. A few years ago, with zero background in filmmaking, she made a short film as a response to a lack of representation she was seeing in the industry. So the the first film that I ever worked on was just a short film that um, basically stemmed from going to a number of outdoor film adventure film festivals and not seeing very many women on the screen. And when they were, I didn't really love the way they were portrayed. I didn't feel like it felt very authentic. And I thought, well, I can sit here and gripe about it, or I can just try to do something about it. And I know photographers who could potentially do film work and my sister does film editing why don't I just try to make something instead of sitting here complaining about the situation let's try to do something about it and certainly I was 100% amateur and didn't really know what I was doing but I think having the freedom to like at that point I didn't have fun I didn't try to like get the film funded in the first place or anything so I had the freedom of just asking my friends hey you know, do you want to try to make something cool together that expresses how we feel about the outdoors? And I'm fortunate to have friends who are game and willing to put a little time in and came out, I came out to Moab for a weekend to do some filming. My friend Becca Skinner did all the cinematography and, and then my sister edited it. And we came up with a, a film that ended up getting a People's Choice Awards at, at one of the festivals that we took it to and, and showed at the Banff Mountain Film Festival, and which was more than I could ever have hoped for it but and it ended up getting funding from a company that I partner with after the fact um, and I think that it was probably probably saw that success because we were able to just start as an amateur and not try to like we didn't wait until we were experts you know and it's certainly like watching it now I'm like oh it's so rough <laughs> you know it's my professional eye sees so many horrible things wrong with it and so many rough around the edges things um, but I think something in the message res really resonated with people and it made me psyched that, oh, we were able to put together this thing that was, like I said, kind of rough around the edges. And, but because we were willing to risk that and be imperfect, it got it out there. And, and especially as like more women are getting into adventure filmmaking, we have to have room for those trials and to like practice and do the thing that isn't perfect to get to the point where we can produce those really polished professional grade things you know which are being made by women but there are just so few of them and I think the more we're allowing people to try like the way I was able to try then the more we'll get to those awesome polished stories by women and for women and I think it makes a big difference to be able to to attempt I would say just do it if you really want to do something don't wait for somebody to give you permission or to tell you that you're ready because you probably will never feel ready and the more you learn the more you realize you don't know that much and that's okay sometimes you just need to start and it helps to not compare yourself to others because especially with social media it's really hard to see clearly what leg up other people might have or not have in comparison. So maybe don't compare. That's probably a better better way to say. Um, what we see online is mostly the very curated part of our lives and it's really easy to feel intimidated like, oh, I'm not ready or, well, I don't have my shit together like that person does. And 
Um, I think I would just say you never know, so it's better to just just do it. Like don't wait till you feel perfect or qualified and just to try. Thank you to Hilary Oliver for all of her words of wisdom. She's currently holed up in Denver writing her first novel, and she's always taking pitches and looking for hilarious adventure stories from new voices for the Outdoor Research blog. Hit her up. pack up we leave and then we land on the sandy beach and I just remember how quiet it was it was eerie but it was also really exciting because it felt just like totally isolated it felt like nobody had been there before it was a really um like faint track that just seemed like not that many people had ridden on or even walked through we rode this track and it turned out to be like some of the most beautiful riding it was super chill like pretty flat the roads were great and we camped and the sunset that night was like the most overwhelming thing I've ever seen I think I I cried it was just so intense all of that effort and all my nerves and everything just kind of all came together and it That's what it was really all about, you know, just kind of feeling like you're the only person in the world. My name is Diana Sachs. I'm a project manager for a green building consulting company. I am half Nicaraguan. My mom is from Nicaragua, and then my dad's family is Jewish. Interesting combo, I guess. Um, Oh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I love mountain biking. Before heading out on her first bike tour with her boyfriend, which was a 200-mile section of the Baja Divide, Diana admits that she had very little experience on a bike. She didn't own a bicycle and didn't particularly want one. But she did love backpacking and camping, and her boyfriend loved mountain biking and bikepacking. So, you know, one thing led to another. Just after college graduation, her boyfriend bought her a bike as a gift, and she got in about 15 minutes of single track and 30 miles of gravel before leaving for the Baja Divide. And really, that was all she had. The mission section of the Baja Divide is supposed to be one of the more scenic sections. I think a lot of the divide is pretty deserty, kind of like similar terrain, but there is a lot of uh, variation in the scenery. We rode through salt flats. There are lots of like bouldery, rocky roads, some like washboard roads, some beach riding, which is really cool, some more like mountainy type of technical stuff. Um, it was, it, I mean, it changed like every day. It would go from like super green and lush with animals just like chilling by the little lakes and drinking water and super scenic. Then it would be really deserty and a bunch of cacti. So it was pretty cool. There was, I think even it's been like two years since that trip and I still don't love Mexican food. (laughs) I kind of got over it. I I had enough Mexican food to last me for the rest of my life, I think, Um, which is crazy because I grew up on rice and beans. I had rice and beans every single day, my whole life or every meal. And I thought I could never get tired of it, but that was wrong. So for food, we ate pretty much like every combination of tortilla and refried beans and tuna imaginable (laughs) we carried like an actual um like stove Mm. and cooking set so we were able to just make like little taco bell style meals (laughs) like crunchwrap supremes and just anything i don't know i can't eat the same thing every day so i tried really hard to make it different every day For a first-time tour, Diana says that the mission section of the Baja Divide was absolutely beautiful, but it was also really difficult. 
It was rocky, technical, and long, and she struggled with feelings of inadequacy, failure, and just the physical pain of writing all day long. I guess failure to me is just not really meeting my own expectations. And I think my expectations then and probably even still now are just really unrealistically high. I just expected to be super fast and be able to just do it. (laughs) And I expected it to not be so challenging. I just felt that when it became a challenge to me and when I realized that it wasn't going to be totally super easy and I wasn't going to nail everything and I was going to have to go really slow on some of the descents and I would have to stop a few times and take breaks and pace myself, then that felt like failure because it felt like I just wasn't meeting my expectations of totally crushing it, which is, you know, crazy because it was my first trip. I did like, you know, 15 minutes of single track before going to Mexico to do it for a week. So I just had really high expectations. So I think because this was like my first long trip, I mean, honestly, I'd probably never even ridden over 20 miles in one day. (laughs) So um, I didn't really realize how important all of the adjustments were. I got really, really sore the first few days. My knees hurt really bad. My butt (laughs) hurt super bad. And after first couple days, I finally felt like comfortable enough to speak up and be like, yeah, I'm getting like just really tired. Um, My legs are hurting pretty badly. And then my boyfriend was like, oh, your seat is way too low (laughs) or like this and this. We need to change that. So I did all these little adjustments and it definitely improved. I don't think I was, I didn't realize the like just the constant like gravelly bumping, like how sore my butt would be from that. It was brutal. (laughs) I don't know if I ever experienced that. So that also made me a lot more conscious about just my posture and where I'm sitting. And it was intense, but there's ways to fix it. Oh, I didn't even, I don't know if I talked about this before or not, but I got, I think it's called cycler's palsy. It's like this weird numbness in your fingers if you're gripping the handlebars in a weird way where you're putting pressure on your nerves and (laughs) I was like definitely like riding the brakes for a long time and I was just like gripping the handlebars and just pushing down on it and my fingers got numb to the point where I couldn't put my hair in a ponytail I couldn't use a fork it was the weirdest like my whole hand just totally numb I couldn't I couldn't do anything. And it was pretty scary. Um, That was another thing. It was just all these adjustments with your posture, the way you're sitting, the way you're like holding yourself. I didn't realize how important that would be for touring. So that's something that I definitely had to learn. There's a lot of, a lot of times where I wanted to quit. Um, I think especially when I realized that it was going to be a lot harder (laughs) than I imagined at first. Especially, I I didn't realize how much, like, there were some really technical sections, and I really thought this whole time, like, all you have to do is be strong. (laughs) Like, you just have to, you know, have muscular legs to push yourself, but that's, I think cycling is definitely a lot more than that. It takes a little bit more um, experience, and kind of like what I was saying earlier, you just kind of have to, like, anticipate the bumps and the like little lines you have to you know find your line and that's not something that you really like intuitively figure out and I I just didn't I didn't think that that kind of knowledge was necessary I thought you just had to keep pedaling and you'd be fine but there were a lot of technical descents where they're um, pretty rocky narrow on the side of a cliff and I fell a few times and I just that crushed me (laughs) um falling that felt like ultimate failure again I just kind of had to realize like these are things that I'm not gonna get on my first try these are things that take practice and yeah my boyfriend is like just cruising (laughs) down this like rocky cliffside 
but he's been doing this for a really long time and I've never done anything like this before and there's no reason to beat myself up about it at least mentally (laughs) physically I did get a little beat up but so I am the kind of person that just cries for any like slightly overwhelming emotion um I cry when I'm happy (laughs) I cry when I'm sad I cry when I'm frustrated especially when I'm frustrated um, and I cannot, I'm trying so hard, but it's, I just can't really control it. It's just a physical response to any, like, slightly elevated emotion. I cried a lot on this trip, but I think I, I just cried when I got so overwhelmed with frustration. And I, I found that on trips that I go on now, I don't cry as much or at all. <laughs> and that's because I think I'm just getting better at dealing with my frustration. I'm, I'm just like kind of letting myself off a little bit. I'm trying to not be so hard on myself when I can't like make this sharp turn or if I have to like put my foot down or if I have to like maybe take, take the fall. <laughs> I don't, I'm just, I think I'm being kinder to myself and I'm not, I will make myself cry. Nobody really makes me cry. I just have to be nicer to myself and not make myself cry. <laughs> Since that Baja trip, Diana has fallen in love with bikepacking and gone on quite a few more trips, despite the fear and discomfort. She says that there's something about the act of riding and pushing herself that gives her a feeling like none other as though she's an explorer or an astronaut discovering new places and new things about herself. One thing she talks a lot about is how writing has changed the way she thinks about competitiveness, perfection, and accomplishment. I think as women, we just kind of, we expect so much (laughs) from ourselves, um, from each other maybe, just like you have to be beautiful (laughs) you just have to wake up every day and be beautiful and then you have to be really good at your job and then you have to go work out and be really good at that and then you have to make dinner and you have to and it has to be delicious and you have to you know go to the grocery store and then you have to spend all this time making something and it has to be good and then you have you know be a good partner be a good sister daughter friend um, you're, you're trying to be the best at so many things and that's just so crazy and exhausting and it's um, okay to not <laughs> try so hard at these things. I don't I think our expectations of ourselves are just so crazy and sometimes that really inhibits us from doing things that we know we won't be very good at at first, um, especially Um, these adventure sports where we're, you know, with men or with other people who've been doing these things since they were children. They grew up with this um, and we're just now learning or some of us are. I think it's important to just kind of realize that you're, it's just kind of insane to believe that you'll be great at it from the start. And it's kind of insane to like hold yourself up to this expectation of just being good at everything you do because that's not possible (laughs) and it's just like it's not fair my boyfriend and I decided to head out to Colorado I had never been to Colorado before and we were thinking about we were meeting up with a friend of ours and we were thinking about doing like a small gravel ride maybe like a two or three day gravel ride near Salida and we get there and we realize it's this huge mountain biking town like there's so many different trails everyone's on these crazy bikes it's just like some of the best mountain biking and there's this one trail in particular, the Monarch Crest Trail, that is just supposed to be like one of the most epic mountain biking routes like in the world or something like that. So we kind of realized when we get there, it's like, yeah, we could do this like little gravel route and it, it could be pretty fun and chill and we'll be camping or, I mean, we could really take advantage of 
kind of what's in front of us right now. And I still <laughs> would not consider myself advanced in any cycling sense <laughs> at all. So it was just super intimidating. And all these like old dudes just talking about how they've been riding this trail for like 15 years and it's not for the week and blah 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 and I just didn't really know what to expect <laughs> like I've never really done any crazy mountain biking like that before it's completely different in Georgia I think than it is um, out west anyway so we take this shuttle up to the peak and in the shuttle it was just like there were maybe a few women but it was just like a bunch of dudes a bunch of bros just like going back and forth about like oh yeah I did this back in like 84 and blah 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 and like oh that's like way too many people now and it's not as cool as it used to be and blah 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 and I was just like the whole time they were just like kind of I don't know like gassing each other up about how hard it was and how we were like part of this elite group of cyclists who are just gonna like totally crush this ride and I <laughs> I was just in the shuttle like oh my god what did I get myself into this is crazy so we get to the top we're unloading our bikes we have to just ride a little bit up higher and like I said poor elevation totally killed me I was out of breath <laughs> like instantly um, again thinking what am I doing how did I get here? This is just wild. After that, there is a little bit, a little bit of reprieve, some just like chill kind of downhill coasting. And then it, it got pretty crazy pretty quick from Baja. <laughs> I, I think I'm still pretty scarred from Baja with the technical descents, just um, like single track, rocky on the side of a cliff. It's really intimidating especially after you've fallen a few times it's hard to just kind of like go for it so I fell a lot <laughs> like a lot in this on the monarch crest route and it was really really frustrating for a lot of the time I mean the whole time though it just still felt like such a cool place to be like maybe it was kind of all those dudes in the shuttle talking about like how hard and how crazy this ride is but the whole time I was there it was it was pretty hard <laughs> and it was crazy but it also felt like just really cool like I felt like I was um somewhere where like just not a lot of people have been it still felt like really remote and we waited for everyone else to go down the mountain <laughs> so we were like the last people to go up I don't know there's still like something about it that just like made me want to finish because I felt like if I finished it, then it would be like this thing I had under my belt. Like, yeah, I, I rode the Monarch Crest Trail. This was like my first downhill mountain biking experience. And I just, I did it and I finished it. And I, I did. And I totally got that feeling at the end where it's like, I cannot believe despite all of that, I fell a bunch of times. I definitely cried, but I kept going. And I don't know. I, I guess I like really thrive on that <laughs> this like sense of accomplishment at the end I love challenges I love solving problems I love pushing myself because I mean where are you going if you're not like moving forward right it highlights I think the little explorer that we all have <laughs> inside of us like I think humans just are always looking for the next adventure they're trying to you know go to the moon or they're trying to go to Mars or trying to, um, you know, see something that we haven't seen before and to discover things. And I think, um, especially with bikepacking, with cycling or with any sort of challenge or sport, you're just kind of seeing where your body can go. Like how far can you take your skills? Like how, how much can you learn? How good can you get? Like, where can this take you? And I, I, you got to be careful, you know, with, with pain and knowing your body well enough to know when you need to kind of slow down. I think it's exciting when something is still in this phase that it's, it's really hard <laughs> and it's physically exhausting um, because you just feel so much better at the end of it. It's, it's a real sense of accomplishment when you're done with the ride, you're 
back in your van <laughs> and you are so sore you can't even walk but it's just a really great feeling even even through the pain it's um, I don't know the feeling of accomplishment is like totally overwhelms any soreness afterwards I do not care anymore. <laughs> I think that was something that I would be really intimidated to be with people who are just like so much better than I am. But I think like, I don't know, there's so many things that I do that I'm, I just stand out, whether it's because I'm, I don't have that much experience um, or I'm like the only woman or usually the only Hispanic person in like a 10 mile radius <laughs> or anything. Um, I don't know. I'm like just. I just don't think it's really useful to compare yourself to other people. Or ex yeah. So my relationship with that has definitely changed. I don't mind going with people who are way better than me because that's going to be like pretty much everyone. <laughs> like I haven't. I didn't grow up with this. I just kind of stumbled into it in my mid twenties, and I fell in love with it. And I'm like on my own cycling journey, and they who or people who've been doing this since they're kids or even just started like they're on their own journey and we're just all together because we kind of have the same passion or the same interests and that's enough diana snacks can be found on instagram at diana snacks but she'd much rather see you on a ride with atlanta's chapter of wtf bike explorers thanks so much diana Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association. It's hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs, produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, aka the Z Team, and Becca Zook also edits the show. Special thanks to Alex Strickland. Maybe stay away from the berms, man. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org/podcast. You can subscribe and listen to all six episodes in the series right now on your favorite listening app. If you like what you're hearing, please recommend us to a friend or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And hey, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>